0: Hello there, welcome to Peripheral Thinking, the series of conversations with entrepreneurs, advisors, activists and academics intending to inspire you and maybe challenge with ideas from the margins, the periphery, because that's where the ideas which we're going to shape tomorrow are hiding today, on those margins, the peripheries. This week, I spoke to Mark Anielski. Mark's an economist and expert in the economics of well-being. He's written a couple of books about it. You'll find those in the show notes. In this conversation, we talk about his work with the First Nation people of Canada, and we also talk about money, but maybe not as you would think. Do you know where the money in your pocket comes from? No, I didn't either. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Mark, welcome to Peripheral Thinking. Maybe we should dive right in. Could you start by telling us a little bit about your work?
1: So my focus has been on measuring well-being as the kind of fundamental operating principle of economies, because the word wealth comes from the old English which means the conditions of well-being and happiness means well-being of your soul or well-being of spirit from the Greek. So I, I spend my time as a consultant now working primarily with First Nations in Canada in trying to advance this, what we might call a sovereign well-being economy based on their traditional wisdom understanding of creation of nature of laws and so that's been my passion for the last last five years as a consultant but i've worked around the world and was most recently in in london in september on another crazy mission sometimes i think i'm like one of the blues brothers like mission from god and i don't don't know what's gonna happen next but Every step is perfectly ordered.
0: When you were talking about the, the kind of book that you wrote in 2007, so in in, for, in kind of shorthand style, so is that talking to a lot of what I I know as, or kind of people might know, what, what the sort of government of Bhutan were kind of famous for? Is that a similar idea?
1: That's correct. The Bhutan advanced what's called the gross national happiness idea. That actually, back in 1972, the king of Bhutan. But he, it never became very public and for many years but he kind of tongue-in-cheek said why are we measuring gross domestic product which came out of World War II really as a measure of economic progress when in fact certainly in the Buddhist Bhutan is a Buddhist kingdom what is the ultimate goal of life? Uh, happiness uh, Aristotle said that the Buddha said that so yeah so my work relates to that but really as an economist saying what are the actual what's the science of happiness? What are the determinants building blocks of well-being? I'm a performance measurement guy, so I know how GDP is cooked, or I know the recipe I need, know the secret recipe. And uh, so my work has been, well, can we establish new accounting systems at different levels from the nation level down to the, the corporate level that actually measures, as Bobby Kennedy said, the things that make life worthwhile. Right? In other words, the genuine wealth, that's the word I coined, is like genuine wealth, meaning the conditions of well-being that align with what we value most, to live authentically. So this is heavy stuff. It goes back to Greek philosophy and an indigenous philosophy of what is it that constitutes the human being and our human journey. And it's not the pursuit of money. And so my other inquiry has been for since, I call it my calling in Jerusalem in 1992, when at that stage of my life I I was not married. And I was thinking about whether I should be a monk or spend the rest of my life in prayer in a monastery and god said no i don't i want you to go into the temple of the money changers and figure out how to redesign the global money system and i went okay sure and a a year later i was married and i've been pursuing this what i call a civilization of love operating model ever since and it's some people say what a joke here we are in a two years into a pandemic, and for me, COVID was a wake up call. It's okay, show time, time to actually try to advance this well being economy idea pragmatically and, an, and a new money system.
0: And so the, the conversation that we touched on just before Christmas and now was, I think I, I'd also read one of the things, something that you had written, which I'll include reference to, which was talking about debt, essentially. And I think it was actually, I read a thing which was about the kind of cost of debt and how that was related to the kind of climate crisis or as a potential solution to, to the climate crisis, given that the kind of cost of servicing debts and the kind of weight that that puts on, effectively, I think you were talking about, was 52 cents of every dollar that everyone earns in the US and which will be the equivalent here, effectively going to servicing a debt. So this kind of this push to growth being seeded back to the debt question.
1: That's right. And so my mentor, Herman Daly, who's the one of the fathers of ecological economics back in 99 in Washington, I went to visit him and he said, I said, you're interested in this relation between debt and GDP and economic growth. And he said, Mark, this could, this will be the most important inquiry of your career to figure out how this all works. And so I came to the conclusion that even Mark Carney, when he was Bank of England's governor, said 98% of the money that we call money is created as a debt when banks issue loans. I'm like, hold on a minute. He's verified something that some of us have known for a long time. But when a guy like Mark Carney, who's from Edmonton, says that. Then you're like, wait a minute, stop, hit the pause button, BBC, and let's unpack what he just said. And what he was saying is that all money is debt. All money, except the 2% you know, pounds, sterling, whatever, Canadian dollars, US dollars. But that's a small portion of what we call money. And then you have to, so what I did is I started to look at what statistics do I need to track to understand what the actual money supply is? And logically be the total amount of debt in an economy. Private debt, household, government debt, business debt. And so I found those statistics from the Federal Reserve data. Because I, I always have a hunch, the system will brag about certain things, and that that was its bragging table. I remember it was called D3 in and in a Schedule Z1 or something. Total amount of outstanding debt in the United States. And I'm like, okay, so that is the actual money supply in the United States. And Guess what? It never stops growing. So, well, how fast does it grow? Well, since 1947, the total amount of debt has been doubling around seven to eight years. Well, that's interesting. Okay, so that debt has a interest cost to it, right? Because every credit card uh, balance or every mortgage or every government bond has an interest um, coupon on it. What's the cost of that total amount of interest being paid by all of us in the economy? Well, there's no official number because they don't report that. So what I have to do is calculate what the average interest rate, say, is on all the mortgages in Britain or Canada or whatever, and, and then calculate all of these. So we have all these debt line items and you calculate the interest, what you think is the interest cost of that debt. And what I know as an economist, that interest payment is embedded in gdp it's embedded in every expenditure of our households has to be even though you don't see it on your receipt at the till at the grocery store or whatever uh gas station it's there and that's how i came up with this estimate of over 50 percent of the average american is spending 50 percent of their income on hidden interest charges it's even higher in some countries, Canada's around 65, primarily because mortgages are are so important and dominant, right, in the Canadian household spending profile. But hardly anyone talks about this. There's no official accounting of this. And my argument has been, well, if that's true, then all the other things that we're talking about, climate change, you, you think about it, right, GDP is connected to greenhouse gas emissions. There's high correlation. Therefore, what's actually driving GDP growth? Herman Daly said, you have to maintain an economic growth commensurate with the rising level of debt and the rising costs of interest payments. And even at the lowest rate of interest in our lifetime, we still have very high levels of interest payments in the economy. So you can't solve climate change, in my opinion, without dealing with this problem. And nobody talks about it. It wasn't discussed at Glasgow. It's not part of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. It's just missing. It's an egregious, it's a terrible thing to go undebated.
0: I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it links to also the fact that this whole topic of money is quite undebated and undiscussed, really. And actually, so it's only like for myself, I read a a book a a few years ago by, I think he was actually a management consultant He was called Peter Koenig. And he wrote a book called 30 Lies About Money and so in that kind of he just shines a light on some of the things which are all of us are willfully blind towards and that was the first time he, I, I had read anybody articulate the thing you're talking about the fact that where does money come from and uh, we were talking about this before Christmas I then it was really planted a seed with me I was then bothering my own children nephews nieces kind of kids of all ages basically just asking the question where money comes from and of course actually it's that thing it's the phrase in my mind the it's as if it's the water in which we swim, isn't it? It's so much everywhere. Somehow it's not something that we discuss or we debate. And to your point around, your yeah, relationship to climate change, but also money in general. I think if I did a, a sort of straw poll walking down my road to the kids' school or wherever it might be and asked everyone along the way, where does money come from? Actually, I don't know what people would think from the bank, from the government would be maybe the kind of responses that they give, but they don't really understand what that means.
1: They, they don't. And uh, there was a, a young 20-year-old Canadian who, a few years ago, he, just, he did one of these street polls. He just went around asking people where they thought money came from. And most people, when they stopped to think about it, they were, they were like, well, government prints it. And even the finance minister, Paul Martin at the time, was fumbling with his co- It was almost a remarkable scene where he, it was, like, he was just fumbling because he, he didn't know the answer and then he blurts out well before money there was trade and i'm like this is just nonsense what are you talking about you don't you're the finance minister and you don't know that the that the origin of money is bank created loans and to some extent government issued bonds when they go into deficit like covid like who, who's talking about how many bonds had to be issued to pay us to to survive economically nobody talks about it.
0: So what that kind of means, practically, so that, so if I want a mortgage, for example, or something like that, so obviously, I go to the bank, and the bank says, here's whatever, thousands of pounds to, as a contributor for your mortgage. So that essentially is just debt, which it is, that's not taken from an account over here, and put in my account over there.
1: It never existed prior to you stepping into the bank. And if the teller, if the loans officer showed you their computer screen, Try it out one day, maybe. I'll we'll see if they do it. You know, normally the banker has a computer. Like you are looking at the back of the computer, right? And like, no, no, I want to see your computer. Can I sit right next to you? And uh, can I watch your keystroke entries? So you've asked you've asked me a bunch of questions, Ben. So do you have a job? Yeah. Oh, you are self employed. Ah, oh, you are a bit risk. It's a bit risky. Whatever. You got a you got a good government job, or so fine. So they check you out. your legitimacy to even receive a mortgage i always say the word mortgage means a death pledge in french and so it's wow but you didn't know that and so you you pre-qualify for a mortgage because you have a job and you have some collateral oh you have a motorbike or you have a car like in case you default we could grab that um and by the way we'll grab your house too if you default they don't tell you all that fine print stuff and suddenly you walk out with say a two hundred pound mortgage but the reality is the mortgage, the money didn't exist prior to you coming into the bank. They're like, hang on. Okay, show me that truth. Show me, if you could show me that £200,000 came from the deposits in the right in the bank, that those pounds were aligned with your mortgage, I'll buy it. But that is not what happens. And people are like, really? I'm like, really? You go and ask a loans officer go ask a president of a bank to explain how this works and they will be chasing their tails because they've never thought about it. So that's why I'm saying having a bank is the best business in the planet because you're creating money out of thin air. In Latin, it's called ex nihilo, out of thin air, out of nothing. And it's fitting that we use the Latin fiat for money, which means to be created out of light, like just nothing. So money is a remarkable instrument that of human creativity. It has enormous power. And the fact is we created it and therefore we can design it. My whole point is we can design money anyway to serve any goal we want for society. Do you want full employment and living wages? Do you want to solve climate change? You could solve all these things just by deciding that we will only create as much liquidity I mean, it's fitting that we've used the water metaphor. You think about it. Liquidity, currency, banks are all water metaphors. And we know something about water. If if you try to dam it or store it up, it has a way of breaking down dams and breaking rock. And it follows this crazy serpentine path. Like, it's totally inefficient. Like, a river is totally inefficient, the way it moves. So all these beautiful water metaphors we use for money. And yet we don't treat the natural laws of nature with respect to money. So in other words, money should actually be, if it was modeled after nature, like the sun. I've asked grade four students this question, where does money come from? What do you think? And they, some kid says, from trees. And I'm like, it's true in a way. I, my, my dad used to bug me. What do you think? Money grows on trees? And so it was my third book. It's still in draft. Money grows on trees, and I'm like, yes, in part. But what gave the tree life? Without expectation of a return, they're like, Ugh. look outside. What do you see in the sky? Can we mimic this? Can we mimic money commensurate with the sun, with trees? In other words, money could be super abundant, or it could be made super scarce,
0: right? And so, just so I understand, just to, so the, the fact that. 98% of money is created, is imagined out of thin air by banks who have the monopoly over that. How, wh- why is that a problem?
1: A, it's a problem because money is not democratized. If money was democratized, if all of us in the village decided how much liquidity we needed to have a market and have a flourishing, everyone has at least the ability to pursue a living wage. A meaningful life, meaningful work. That would change everything, wouldn't it? So the issue is not the money system. It's the, those who have the power, those who have the corporate charters, and those who have central banks, many of which are privately owned, like the Federal Reserve. One of the first experiments, the Bank of England. And we know the problem of, of the, the concentration of power, as Abraham Lincoln called him, the money power. And one of my favorite stories is Napoleon himself. He thought he'd be smart and borrow the model, the Bank of England's model, and create the Bank Royale for France. And at the end of the day, he got He didn't just lose at Waterloo, he lost his aspiration. It was remarkable if you study his life. He wanted to democratize money for the French people. And the the guys in England basically said, over our dead bodies, you're never going to democratize money because... If you democratize money, it's over for all of us. Now you could say, oh, you're into, cons- no, I'm not into conspiracy. I'm into this is business. Those who control the issuance of money rule the world.
0: And so then, if we did design a system based on kind of natural principles that had abundance baked into it, how, what are, what, what is that story? How are we going there?
1: So, what I've been developing and Fortunately, I'm doing it with First Nations people here in Canada, the First Peoples, who have actually very ancient laws of natural law, what we would call natural law in the Church, or in the Catholic Church, we call natural law. And these are laws that are just fundamental to creation, that all wealth comes from the Creator, all wealth comes from God. So, In other words, all wealth, meaning the conditions of well-being, something Adam Smith never defined in The Wealth of Nations. And I always joke, it's like, why did he not define the word wealth in his whole book on the wealth of nations? And I say, uh, probably because he was Scottish, he couldn't admit that the 13th century English defined the word wealth as the conditions of well-being. Wella meaning well-being, the letters TH meaning the conditions of something. So my argument is, if money is related to the real wealth of a nation, the people the relationships we have, social capital, the land and the water, natural capital, the built capital, the things we build, then money should flow as a requirement to oxygenate the assets of the nation to to achieve what sort of an optimization of well-being impacts, well-being return on investment, to optimize the well-being conditions in a society and, and not and equally distributed to the extent that nobody should go without a living wage. And I'm, I'm not arguing that everyone should be equal because my model is based on that each person has a certain set of talents, gifts, or skills or capacities. The indigenous people say every child born is an answer to a prayer. And when you did your vision quest when you're 12 or 13, you received a download. From your relatives who are praying for you, that Ben, you're going to be a good father, you're going to be a good accountant, you're going to be a good hunter, and I'm like, okay, that's why. Now, when I go to school, what is school? What is education in the in means to draw forth what's already within you from the Latin? That's what education means, but that's not what we understand it. So, my point is like, all of these attributes of a genuine wealth monetary system are all aligned to asking, what's the best and highest use, a word we use in real estate, what's the highest and best use of any given asset class? So our monetary authority, <clears throat> our governments, are then comprised of we, the people, who collectively understand that each of us brings a unique set of assets from ourselves, from our household, in our neighborhood. We're sitting in ecosystems called watersheds. There's natural principles and laws that govern ecosystems that we pay attention to, and we don't create too much money. First of all, we don't need debt money anymore. We just need a perfectly super efficient liquidity system that creates just enough money for sustaining these assets, maintaining your home, maintaining infrastructure, dealing with climate, whatever, you know. Yeah, let's reduce, let's find renewable energy options. Let's reduce our carbon footprint. All those things are possible. And that is a super efficient system. Now, people say, that's really, sounds really complicated. I said, it is. It's more complicated than the current system because the current system has this kind of wild west, like just create, well, the banks can create as much. If you think about it, the paradox is the banks could actually do everything I'm talking about. They could create enormous amounts of debt and liquidity, but there's no discipline, there's no guiding principles. There's no values that underline the decision for a bank to issue loans, except we just want to make more fees. We just want to profit maximize. No, 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 that's not why we gave you a corporate charter. And I'm not saying we shut down the banks. I'm saying make the banks behave the way that you want them to behave. If you come in and you want a business loan, you should be expected to provide a good business plan. That says, I want to open a cafe or restaurant. Wait a minute. Like, maybe there's too many restaurants already. Maybe you're not going to survive. You could try. But it would be, right? It, It would just not be mature or responsible to issue loans to companies that probably are not going to survive anyways. And all the commensurate grief that will come as a result of you going bankrupt or whatever. Anyway, so these are all very complicated. And I'm saying that there is nothing in the world like this yet that I could see. And even the indigenous people who have very ancient ways of thinking about money. They didn't have banks. They had no currency systems. They used seashells. Wampum. They wrote treaties were in, in Latin, sui generis, meaning there were relationships that were continually negotiated as you journeyed together down this river together between the crown and the indigenous people of North America. Very interesting contracts. But always continually renegotiated as you journey to a mutual a mutuality of responsibility over the land over stewardship it was stewardship that's why the king and the indigenous people signed treaties right so anyways I'm, i'm going off on again i'm way at this tributary but only to to bring it back to what i'm trying to do with the first nations is can we redesign a modern monetary system that is rooted in your ancient traditions of knowing of that all wealth came from the creator we didn't create right anything like we are tenders of the land we are farmers we're stewards we don't hunt overhunt the deer otherwise we'll starve in 5 years so we they take their clues from nature nature is the model it is the teacher and money must be modeled after nature
0: Otherwise, we're in trouble. Behind me, somewhere on the shelf, I've got the book which we—I know you—you're very familiar with—Charles Eisenstein's book, Sacred Sacred Economy. Economics. Charles and
1: I <laughs> are good friends. That's right. I remember I, saying, yeah. I realized that sitting in the UN in 2012, listening to the Bhutanese Prime Minister, we, s- we sat next to each other, and I'm like, I said, "Hang on, Charles, this is—we're sitting in the wrong place in New York, aren't we?" And I said, "I said, yeah, you're right." I said. We should be sitting in George Soros' office. We should be in Wall Street. This conversation about happiness, with all due respect to the Prime Minister and the Secretary General, this is the wrong place to be sitting. And Charles said, you're right. He said, I'm going to go. At one o'clock, he got up. He goes, I'm going home, going back to Harrisburg, and I'm going to spend time with my kids. And like, good for you. Get back on the train get out of here. Listen to all the Prince Charles, blah, blah. These like politicians talk about happiness. Just what are we doing?
0: Because I think my my question reading his thing was how, because obviously the the kind of spirit of everything that he's articulating just makes sense. Well, I'm the how guy. You're the how guy. Okay. I love
1: Charles, but it was like, it's the how. And what I've been trying to do in my life is like the practical, because I have this accounting background, I know GDP, I know, I know monetary policy. I know how the banks create the money. And I know that I'm creative enough to propose a better system. Now, the fundamental question is, okay, smarty pants, after writing about it in 2007, why hasn't anything happened? And I said, because, if you think about it, the 2008 crisis, we didn't learn anything from it. We didn't discipline the bankers. In fact, we gave them more money. We bailed them out when a lot of those banks should have been reprimanded of being allowed to go bankrupt because they were playing with crazy synthetic derivatives of money and uh, subprime mortgages. And, and, and you look back in time, you, you look at when those decisions of subprime, they were made by President Clinton and his advisors and said, hey, this is a great thing. We need to get people who shouldn't get mortgages onto, onto the debt treadmill. And this is just ridiculous. They knew what they were doing. They had to have known the consequences, and yet none of them are in jail. Like at least in Iceland, they put some of those guys in jail because they're Vikings, maybe. But w- they're still operating, and the debt just keeps. The-, the only thing that happened in 2008 was the debt curve in the United States actually went sideways for the first time since never. It's never gone sideways
0: as the the, the, pri- the private debt curve essentially did.
1: No, the total debt curve goes like this for about 18 months. Means shit, you're gonna have it's gonna have a heart attack, it has to keep growing. And and so then it resumes, and COVID has just exploded the debt like the debt is so far. So th- the question is when the interest payments on the debt reach a hundred percent of the GDP <laughs> or whatever, or household spending, is that it? Is that the blowout? Is that when we really? And so now we have these conversations World Economic Forum, The Great Reset, Klaus Schwab stuff. It's like, wait a minute, these guys knew exactly what they were doing. And I've always said, people said, well, when is it going to end, Mark? You said in 2007 it could end very soon and then 2008 crisis hit. And I said, I told you, I can't tell the game of musical chairs we played as a kid. Like, when will someone lift the needle off the record player and the whole thing fall apart? Well, it could happen that way, or it could be a knock-on effect where, as we saw with both in the U.S. and in England with H.Boss, the collapse of H.Boss, and it could have caused this contagion where everything, even in 1999, long-term capital management almost collapsed the system because there, there were these Harvard mathematicians playing with algorithms, and it took Greenspan to step in and stop the... Because These things may have a way of unraveling just on their own mathematically once they start. And one of the things I've observed, if you followed the the phenomenon of GameStop a little, and and how the the little guys, right? The 20-year-olds were literally, they could have choked the hedge fund guys. They could have destroyed the hedge fund market. But the boys stopped the trading. Like, they have the power to stop the trading. And But it could have all, and I'm saying, what happened if another kind of GameStop would occur today where we all decide it's over all the sociopathic system that we are ignorant of ends and we find a full democratization of money and it could be through blockchain and it's not going to be Bitcoin, it's going to be something else Bitcoin is not the answer Ethereum is not the answer like these are people say, what about Ethereum? I'm like, it's cute, but it's not well-being based. I'm talking about a fully transparent, well-being backed, globe, and not just global, but relevant to the ecosystem in which you live. If you live in Ireland, we have a watershed called whatever, and it has certain biological, ecological capacity, They're unique to Ireland, that are not that are unique to Russia or unique to wherever. And that's what I'm talking about. And it's not, and I've got the accounting systems to to know that it's possible to operate these systems. Now, the best I can do right now is I can play in Excel, I can play in spreadsheets and show you a debt non-debt-based system in which the savings are enormous. The cost savings just alone on interest. I said, I can go, I can take you from a 40-hour work week to a 20-hour work week. Like that. Are you interested? I'm going to run for prime minister. I, I'm going to give you every bread a 20 hour work week, even with COVID, even staying working at home. It's possible. Oh, that would be inf- why would it be inflationary? None of those things are true. Why don't we do it? Uh, what's the consequences? Because my argument is well, if I gave you a 20 hour work week, that means you have 20 hours an hour discretionary time to do what? You know, play with your kids more? You can go for walks more. Are you going to cook more? Are you going to spend time with your neighbors? Or are you going to drink alcohol? What are you going to do with the 20 hours I just gave you? Because before that, for multiple generations, your grandparents were debt slaves. How much hours of life energy did people waste working just to pay for interest that they had no understanding of? This is the great crime against humanity.
0: So the UK debt is something like two, just over two trillion pounds, which I think has gone up by something like a quarter in the, over the COVID times or something extraordinary like that. So the, the. UK government owes something like £2 trillion in total. And the other thing is, of course, no one ever speaks about debt. They always speak about the deficit, So, the, because which number is also much smaller as far as the news is concerned. Rather than saying we owe t- £2 trillion, it's always just a question around, oh, it's a deficit and the deficit is this month or whatever it might be. So apparently something like 40% of all of the money that the government owes in our country. And I guess it's similar-ish elsewhere. Something like 40% of all the money it owes, it owes to the Bank of England. So technically, it owes the money to itself. Exactly. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Ben, for stating the obvious. (laughs) Now,
1: the the problem is the 60% that's owned by, owed to who, or owned by who? Now, here's the interesting thing. As with Canada, so I, I did this math too. So Canada issued... Uh, 500 billion of new bonds. So that's how governments balance their budgets, right? If, if they're in deficit, they have to sell debt, which is called bonds. And the controller, the finance minister, here, here's the great thing. I've asked the, the finance minister and controller in Alberta, how did you create the 10 billion to balance the budget? And he says, uh, it's just, it's just paper. You mean like this? And yeah. So you put 10 billion dollars down. Uh huh. And then what happened? I signed my name to it. And then what happened? We took it to the market. You you sold it. Uh huh. Who bought it? I can't tell you. Oh, what do, what do you mean? You can't tell ten billion is a lot. There's gotta be like fragments of this There's gotta be contracts and invoices and sorry can't tell you. What? You can't tell an Albertan how much who's owning the Chinese own it, or the Brits own like bank who come on. This is ridiculous. And, but that's the answer. So you took a piece of paper, you wrote 10 billion on it, and you were able to sell it because we have a good credit rating or whatever people perceive government debt or bonds as like totally risk appropriate. But in the case of Canada, 500 billion. And people go, wait a minute, 500 billion it seems like a, it's a big number. You know how big it is? Prior to the COVID, the amount of outstanding federal debt was $740 billion, which had been accumulating since 1974. Oh, wait a minute, we added $500 billion additional debt to that 35 years of, you know, and nobody talks about who bought it. And then you check, oh, wait a minute, let's check the Bank of Canada's balance sheet. And the Bank of Canada looks like it purchased most of that debt. And to your point, Wait a minute, the Bank of Canada is owned by us. We're the shareholders of the Bank of Canada. It's not a private bank like the US Federal Reserve. So why would we pay interest on our own debt? And why wouldn't we just after the pandemic's over? It's a war. It's like we did in World War Two. We sold war bonds to Canadians with a zero coupon rate and a 10-year life. In other words, we lent our money to the Canada, Canadian government so they could beat the Germans. And I said that's no different today. This is a war on a virus, and when the when the pandemic's over, I hope the Bank of Canada just strikes a pen through the debt and says, it's over. And if you think about it logically, all that money that 500 billion went into our pockets so that we could survive and pay the bills and the mortgages. And so the money's spent, you say well, it's inflationary. No, it's not. It's not really. If you if they gave us too much money and we didn't actually need 2000 roughly $2000 a month was given, then I could argue 2000 was just enough like it was a living wage. But then if you start to look now again, and say, wait, how much of that government COVID debt money was bought by the private markets then we've got a problem because now we're paying interest on this private market held debt which to my earlier point exacerbates the 52 cents now goes to something higher or 75 cents or whatever these will vary by nation but that's it isn't it because we should have never privatized that COVID debt no way. And the interesting thing too is, I don't think the private sector even had the capacity to buy all that debt. They w- they themselves would have never taken on that much.
0: So, in the you're talking like four or five hundred uh, billion, which again these numbers become meaningless obviously because our brains can't compute them. But four or five hundred billion dollars in Canadian dollars in in debt. But I, I think it's. The increase in the UK government debt is like four hundred billion pounds, which is. The- well, it's, it's.
1: I mean, it's actually s- smaller on a per capita basis. You got sixty whatever million. We have thirty-eight million. You're, yeah, okay, one point six times four hundred is whatever. So, it, it's. I would. It would be interesting to compare countries and see on a per capita basis how much government COVID debt was created. And what's interesting is savings rates actually increased. And these, these, and a lot of people just said, well, "Hang on a minute! If government just pays me two thousand a month forever, which, which won't be the case, then why would I go back to my minimum wage job?" And exactly, you basically said a guaranteed income is possible because you created the bond to do it, and that's the other point I make. It's like all this climate change stuff. I said, you know what? The government could create special purpose instruments called climate bonds or whatever. They could create very unique instruments to solve the biggest problems we face and make them special purpose. So they have a clear, like green bonds have a very special purpose, right? So write the term sheet. So it's this is what this instrument's going to do. And these are the expected outcomes
0: so the, a lot of the work i do my background is as an entrepreneur i've been involved with setting up businesses i do a lot of work with people who set up businesses and are in that thing and like you say over the last year and a half two years i think everybody's a little bit embarrassed to admit it but many of them have had the best fucking two years that they've ever had <laughs> exactly
1: <laughs> you and i included probably like wait a minute I-. I didn't have to travel, in. I didn't have to buy anyone lunch or coffee like woohoo.
0: like yeah and cli- and their clients are spending money and it's all it's a lot of that is going but so I'm really curious so of all of this money that was issued so all of this debt was bought so like in the UK let's say whatever 800 billion pounds worth of money is owned by the Bank of England just so I can understand like when the where did that money come from so the Bank of England they've just issued that's also effectively made up money somewhere because the bank of england doesn't have any gold or anything anymore i know that was sold uh, a long time
1: ago <laughs> Neither, they <laughs> just canada trudeau sold every last time like, yeah. where's the gold gone to come <laughs> yeah. on it's not all in manhattan i hope see the bank of england or the bank of canada exists as a sovereign national bank so it's in arm of the parliament right It's it. so it's accountable to parliament not like the federal reserve that's different so every sovereign central bank simply acts as a manager of inflation and all these things. So, and I'm, I'm trying to start really plain language. But the point is, it's the finance minister, him or herself, which who issues government debt, the public the bonds. Then the Bank of England or Canada can buy those bonds. And sometimes what's happening with the Bank of Canada is some of that COVID bonds are now being sold to the private market. I'm like, well, stop that. <laughs> who gave you permission to do that? There's never been a debate about this because if you privatize that covid debt then we're in trouble in my opinion because there could be a debate in the parliament say we're going we're going to dictate the bank of england to write off that covid debt because it's pandemic's over we didn't see we only needed the money as an emergency infusion of cash to keep things going but once it's back to a normalized now all that said we still haven't solved the the debt-money system thing at all. Nothing's changed in that regard. So the GDP has to keep growing, still growing, even in a post-pandemic. And people say, oh, isn't it great? We pause the whole world, the planet's breathing easier. We will go back to the the same treadmill. Unless, what's interesting is, for information, we are in the Jewish calendar year 572, which is actually, we are in the middle of the Jubilee uh, year. In the Jubilee year, all debts and all wealth was to be forgiven and all wealth would be redistributed. Now, this goes back to the ancient Sumerian clean slate laws. So the Jews adopted those ancient Sumerian laws and called it the Jubilee. And my question is, why aren't we having a discussion in 2022 in January about what the world could do to have a great Jubilee, a proper reset? And wipe out all the debt in the world because it's possible now it would require everyone to agree though because one country could not do it on its own without having repercussions so when we hear language like the great reset or the the u.n development goals i'm like there's where is this discussion, whether it's in churches or the rabbis or across all faiths, Islamic communities, they know this, uh, they're not allowed to have interest. This is a huge issue that I don't see any meaningful debate. Around.
0: And I guess in really super simplistic terms, the reason the kind of wall you run up against goes back to this thing around power, because at the moment, the kind of money system and all of that is then inextricably linked with power, or it's, uh, it's reinforcing some power centers within that. And so the only way of having the conversation around this is by directly challenging those power structures.
1: Challenging it, but also educating. Like we're doing right here. We're having a discussion, people. and, And I think it's ignorance and naivety that are really to the benefit of those who have the power. And I'm saying that from a perspective. I know a lot of people who once they realize this, how this game works, they get some people just enraged. They can't believe that this kind of injustice continues and has been going on for not centuries. Like I referenced Napoleon. Just go ask Napoleon what if he, what he would have done differently. So this is a very very ancient, long standing issue. But I think the only way to solve this is, is to have a transparency and understanding. If you look at the Medici's right in, in Italy, the reason they became the dominant bankers of Europe is because of Luca Pazzioli and Leonardo da Vinci who designed the double entry bookkeeping system. Five hundred years ago, right? After the big plague, the black plague, the renaissance happened. that Luca using ancient Sumerian mathematics, debits equals credit, which is inspired by nature, Fibonacci, one to one, always one to one for every entry there's an offsetting, right? Except there was something flawed in Luca. So the Medici's became, like, I believe the Medici's became the central, they became the Jesuits, which became the bankers of the Vatican. Because they knew the Rothschilds. They they all knew that if we have the power to control the issuance of money through loans, we we will always dominate. So that is not to say they're bad people. They're just good business people. And um, so that's why the Medici's were so successful, and other bankers in Europe. So you have to go through this very long, sweet sweep of history. Now, the interesting thing is, you know, I go back to an interesting phrase, and so Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, and he doesn't, so we've been saying the word trespasses forever in the Lord's Prayer, but in fact, the original language is, forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. And Michael Hudson, the brilliant uh, economic historian who who's written all about the history of debt, five thousand years of compound interest, all of this stuff. His latest book's called And Forgive Us Our Debts. And I'm like, this is what just restoring the original language makes us think about, wait a minute, he said debts and debtors. I know what that I don't know what a trespass is. I think it's a property violation. But why did the church change the language? And if our mindset, if we suddenly were more conscious that actually was about money. Jesus turned over the money changers in the temple. Why did he get angry at the money changers? What was it about money? And the transactional the thing that happened in the temple was you had to exchange your normal shekel for a temple shekel in which you could then buy an animal and sacrifice to put on the pyre. Ring. And he said, "No, this is not how God God works. You go directly to God. You can talk directly to my Father. So forget, So debts become an encumbrance to the relationship with the divine. See, so it breaks, and it causes us to do strange things and behave incongruent with a God of love. So that's been my main focus now. It's like, how do we get back to reestablishing a covenant relationship we have and that's why the indigenous people are so powerful and important to me, because they remember they exist only because the creator, because God allows them to exist. And they treated money very carefully. They used seashells as a proxy. They had elaborate forms of exchange and, mu- and laws of mutuality or understanding of reciprocity. Whereas the West went into this, beginning really in ancient China, you know, sort of agreed centred system in which those who control the issuance of money rule the world
0: I kind of wonder it it feels like these are the kind of debates which should be happening in universities obviously not under the architecture of the economics department. But it's because students, obviously, understand debt. They understand these things because that's the currency of the world in which they operate. And also, if you were going to... Because I was thinking like before with, you know, how you would start to further this debate, even politically. And of course, like, if you think about the mainstream political parties, they are all so concerned by appearing economically sound. You know, nobody is going to pick up a point of view which is... Is seen as contentious or opposed to the system because they would see that as compromising themselves so that they're not the route to go through you can't go that way so where can you on the peripheries on the margins start to bubble up kind of understanding around this and i wonder whether sort of the students for all of the obvious reasons whether that is a kind of place to go
1: no you're right ben i've always when i give presentations at the university i taught for 10 years in the school of business here and i taught corporate ethics or corporate social responsibility and some of the students it was a joke and I said I'm going to give you one lecture on money and you do your own homework and then you come back and let's talk about what's possible because out of your imagination we, now we have blockchain we have all these other interesting platforms that 25 and 30 year olds are working on and, and I'm like I'm excited like so you know I've come up with a model called Soulprint of well-being which is came from my trip to Singapore I was thinking hang on if time hours of life lived is all we have in common you have you're born ben your hourglass is already the moment you're born it's have seven hundred thousand grains of sand and that's how many hours you have to live okay and do you want that beside your bed side table every morning you wake up and you're like shit statistically i've got so many grains left and that means you'll live to about 82 so it's like wait a minute if that's the common unit that we all have this in our digital wallet or if you really want an hourglass fine terrify you because you'll be looking at it all the time but the point is If now life was about exchanging of time, so here we're spending over an hour in a fun whatever conversation, but we leave because the exchange of our time is creating a mutual benefit. It could be hope. It could be joy. It could be despair. You might go, God, I'm so depressed after that conversation. So my depression, my liability side of my balance sheet went up because despair went up by 10 basis points. But... My maybe my joy went up or my hope went up. So I was thinking, what what if we created a platform which this exchange of time had, the benefits are measured in, in emotions and qualitative, right? And this would be a totally different kind of economy. Now, in that way, we'd be each other's bankers in a sense, because we're all the same. Your grains of sand are more valuable than mine. You might decide to spend eight years studying brain surgery or something and Great. Good for you. I should, we should be paying you for the eight years of education. You should not be having any debt. Because we talk about intellectual capital and all this stuff. But you should be receiving at least a living wage, 20 pounds an hour or something, to go and study astrophysics or whatever because you're good at astrophysics. So that's the economy I think is possible. Chris Serrano, he heard me speak in Banff a few years ago at a distributive energy conference. I blurted out the soul print thing because he grabbed me, like, he ran out of the room and said, like, Look, he said, I'm working on this crypto, this blockchain thing that I'm going to present in Dubai. And he went third place for his idea. And I said, I think your idea is like, it's fantastic. But he said, The problem is, I don't know how you can make money with it. And I said, That's the point a well-being platform of relationships, of mutuality. The only way it can make money is maybe on the back end where I'm calculating reduced counseling costs or healthcare costs because your joy went up, your hope went up, and therefore your blood pressure is improved or whatever. But that's, isn't that a compelling economy? And they're like, yeah, but still. So you realize a lot of the kids in the blockchain world, the Vitalik Buterins, who I consider brilliant and, and quite a remarkable young man are still wanting to get rich. They're still motivated by the same motivation of the Medicis. And it's got to stop because, it, again, it's all that mentality of money will make me happy. And it's like, no, it won't.
0: I guess there's a sort of paradox, isn't there? Because, in a sense, that kind of that race, that quest for kind of more money the kind of filling ourselves up the kind of the empty filling the empty ghost kind of idea which is they can talk about in in kind of buddhist circles is is linked to a story that money is power but of course we're projecting power onto the money but i guess the kind of slight paradox is there there are people who have used money to create power for themselves which i picture and disproportionately by sociopaths. The movie The Corporation. It, it was
1: brilliant. It said the corporations have the best CEOs are have psychopathic tendencies, sociopathic. And it makes sense. So I'm like, but what, hang on a minute. It's what portion of society are sociopaths? And they're running the show? Well, we, like, who are children of, we believe in love, we believe in all this other good stuff, and we're beholden to a system that is managed by sociopaths who have no maybe they lack empathy, compassion. My fascination is these men, mostly men of power, how can they go to sleep at night with a clean conscience knowing, like 2008 thing, how could these men continue like, I advised Bernie Madoff victims in New York. I said Bernie's just a foot, he's just a doorman to these other levels of men who who seem to have no uh, empathy and i said even to soros like i presented my idea this general wealth idea in 2011 to to soros at davos through a friend of mine who was hosting a dinner with the deutsche deutsche bank vice chairman and soros and (laughs) so it was a two-page briefing i wrote it in my second book climbing well-being what i propose to soros and i said and thinking, look, I've read Soros' stuff. He's a financial alchemist. He's brilliant. And he's cynical. Because he, he understands human behavior. He goes, humans are stupid. Like, they're, they are sheep. Like, cynically. And so whether he... So he's a financial alchemist. And he said, I don't think the world's yet ready, he says to my proposal. I don't think they're ready to accept a world of holistic wealth. Wow. What a brilliant statement. Now, Kalkak Vaser, who is the vice chairman of Deutsche Bank, says to my proposal, I'm intrigued enough with this idea that Mark presents to consider being a Sherpa of the idea to the next G20. Now, Deutsche Bank, Soros, one guy says, compelling, other guy cynically says, no, I don't think humanity's ready to take the responsibility. That's it. That, to me, says, speaks volumes. So, Of course, the money powers, Abraham Lincoln, would always say humanity's not ready. A, they're ignorant. They don't understand. And in fairness to all of us, because we don't understand, there's no debate. There's no opening for conversation at universities or economics professors. None of them know where money comes from. They talk about price and quantity, you know, Y, X axis stuff. No one ever says, where did the snake around the stick come from? Where does the dollar come from? If you don't understand that, how can you talk about price and quantity relationship on the demand-supply curve?
0: I do, and maybe just reflecting my kind of mood of the moment, I do feel quite hopeful and joyful about all of these. quite exciting, I think, all of this, because... It's very exciting, Ben. There's so much. We clearly, well, to me, and we're at a time of kind of huge kind of change. There's so much imbalance in our systems, whether they are financial, whether they're social, whether they are... Ecological or environmental, whatever they may be. So much kind of imbalance in those systems that you like any sort of stretchy elastic band. At some point it breaks back and says, okay, so what does it break back to? And I think I happened to watch again over the weekend, just by chance, the movie, uh, the, the, big short about the 2008 sort of crisis. Isn't it great? My Bernie Madoff
1: victim friends watched it and, I, and they said, Mark, you're right. After I watched the big short, I said, see, isn't it? It's an amazing. Reflection and it's really a a profile of human psychology and like that and yeah I just love it and and everyone's incredulous and anyways it's fantastic
0: and the incredible thing is that actually and so it goes on and there's you know so it goes on nothing has actually changed so here's a historical
1: because I was in Windsor Castle in in September touring through the apartments of Queen Victoria and all that and and I'd been in St George's Chapel in 2018 to an interesting lecture. Which is, you know, beautiful chapel where Henry the is buried and sun was setting through the amazing stained glass. And the lecture was it was an academic on AI. So it was very dodgy. And I was invited by my friend Peter West, who's friend of Prince Charles and all this stuff, anyways. Blah blah blah. And I'm thinking, that AI lecture was incredible. I was I just can't even imagine Henry the like thinking about artificial intelligence. And I'm like Oh my God, what happened to original intelligence? So in 2016, I went to London because Peter West, who is a fabulous man, who is friends with the Queen's Bankers family. So he tours me around and Peter says, you you want to check out the Bank of England? they got a really great museum. It's like, yeah, let's, sure. I'd love to. So we walk into the Bank of England Museum. There's a young woman, the curator. And I said, excuse me, before we go into the, for the tour, do you have a, you have a tally stick the tally stick was the first form of money the most stable form of money ever created in england which was a notch piece of oak stick right that was the money so you're talking about reigniting our imagination and that's what i'm talking about what were the decisions that were made by the king's treasure in terms of tally sticks
0: yeah, the kind of reigniting the imagination, and I think maybe that's a kind of useful kind of point, a useful kind of place to to wrap it up on the thing. I was, something you just said in there, where you're talking about the talk on AI, and uh, you know, in in the chapel, and what happened to original intelligence. There's somebody else who I'm speaking to, a guy called Jeremy Lent, who's uh, written a book uh, called The Web of Meaning, and he has this great phrase in his book, again playing on this AI idea, which but he talks about as animate intelligence, which is this kind of this actually we are a bunch. With this natural intelligence, a kind of natural understanding of how things work and flow. And actually, tapping into this is our opportunity.
1: It's true. And like, my, I was like, the, the cherry on top for me or the sprinkles is like that original intelligence has to do with an innate capacity for love. Like, we are loving creatures and we're hardwired for relationships. And COVID has taught us a lot that we cannot be physically separated, otherwise, we will die. And love is the only currency that I know. And, and the word power means to be able in French. So the power of love is the most important discussion I think we need to have. And we're maybe rediscovering the essence of who we are. And that gives me great hope.
0: Thank you for listening. Really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mark. Uh, If you enjoyed it or if you didn't enjoy it, please feel free to share it. Share it with someone who might enjoy it as much as you. Share it with someone who might dislike it as much as you had. Uh, either way, we really appreciate you taking the time. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. Uh, if you're interested in what we're doing, you can check all of this out on the website, buddhaontheboard.com. Go find Peripheral Thinking there. You'll find all the episodes are posted there. And of course, all the usual channels where these podcasts are are found. You will also find it there. Go check it out. Sign up to the list. Uh, and of course, share if you're interested. Thanks again. Look forward to speaking to you next time.